It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I believe that everybody has a story, and I'm fascinated to hear them. So come with me as we take a walk down Fascination Street. Welcome back, Streetwalkers. This episode is with author David Morrow. David is the author of the book The Altitude Journals, which is basically a culmination of the journals that he kept while climbing the highest point on each of the seven continents, the seven summits, if you will. In this episode, we talk about where David grew up and sort of what got him into mountain climbing. And then we touch on a few stories from some of those mountains and some of those expeditions. It's a wildly fascinating story. You will enjoy it, I promise. There's some humor. There's some sadness. I'm scared the whole way through because I'm afraid of heights. And, of course, we do have a book giveaway. So pay attention to find out how you can win an autographed copy of David Morrow's The Altitude Journals. Enjoy, folks. This is my conversation with author David Morrow. Welcome to Fascination Street Podcast, David Morrow. How are you doing today, David? I'm real good, thanks. Well, that is fantastic. Now, uh, what I usually like to do is I like to start from um, when you were a zygote. So what is your earliest memory about being inside the womb? Just kidding. Where were you born and raised, David? Oh, I was going to answer that question. I was going to say that's the last time I was able to touch my toes. Oh, uh, I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so, so where were you born and raised, David? Yeah, I was born in Encino, California, and uh, I grew up there until about the second grade. And then my family moved up to the Seattle area. My father was an aerospace engineer. So he worked for various aerospace-type companies, eventually ending up at Boeing. Oh, snap. I'm sorry. What age-ish? Did you say second grade? Yeah, second grade. Second grade. All right. So that's, I don't know, like eight, right? Seven, eight, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, your family moved because of work or for work. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume, I, I don't know exactly how old you are, but let's go ahead and assume that that was pre-9-11. Oh, yeah. Very pre-9-11, especially considering I'm now 57. Ooh, you better watch your mouth. That is crazy. Okay, so <laughs> I guess it was me. Since I brought up a pre-9-11 airplane travel, mm-hmm. I'm going to utter one of the greatest phrases of all time that I've ever heard through my ear holes, and I want you to tell me a story behind it. Does that sound fair? All right. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, I mean, if I don't have one, I'll make one up. Let me promise you that. Oh, cool. This will touch on your improv background. Maybe. <laughs> All right. You ready? The gator is loose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, when I was still living in California, my uh, older brother and I collected uh, returnable bottles for the money and used it to buy a baby alligator. Technically, it was a caiman, but uh, nobody knew what that was, so we just called it an alligator, and uh, we raised it in an aquarium in um, our apartment there in Canoga Park, California. And when we moved up to Washington State, a soft spot in our heart would not uh, allow us to leave the gator behind, so we brought him along, and I carried him onto a Pan Am flight, smuggled in a, a cardboard tube that previously had held Lincoln Logs put him underneath my seat. And uh, somewhere over Portland, I was down there digging through stuff under the seat to get my Connect the Dots book and uh, noticed the cap was off the tube and the tube was empty. And so, <laughs> so I, I realized the, the certain difficulty that this implies and uh, climbed back in my seat, put my seatbelt on and leaned over to my mom. I said, Mom, the gator's loose. How does that story end? I mean, I saw the movie where Samuel L. Jackson tells everybody to get these motherfucking alligators off his motherfucking plane. But how did it end in your situation, in your case? My mom freezes and her eyes got huge and she leans over and she's trying to be the toughest parent you can be while whispering. And she said, you boys get down there and you find that alligator. And I mean, right now. And so my my brother and I, we unbuckle, we get down on the floor and the alligator hadn't gotten far. He had climbed beneath the seat of the row in front of us and was just hanging out between the the leather loafers of the man sitting in that seat. If he would have looked down, he'd have seen a live alligator between his feet. Panic would have almost certainly arrived. So my brother and I, there's a quick Rochambeau to see who grabs the gator, and he loses. So he's got to grab the gator uh, by the tail, and I hold the Lincoln Logs container, and he, in one quick move, hauls it out and drops it nose down into the container, and I cap it. No one is ever the wiser. That is hilarious. Just a quick heads up. Rochambeau, in this particular instance, is that rock, paper, scissors thing. But Rochambeau is also the name of a different game where you punch your friend in the dick. So let's assume that it was the rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, no dick punching in this scenario. I want to be clear about that. (laughs) I I could just imagine, you know, like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Please uh, fasten your seatbelts and put your tray tables in. Oh, my God, is that an alligator? (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
I can't even imagine. That's so crazy. Well, and, and, and the incredible thing is that wasn't even the whole story. My brother smuggled a groundhog in a container uh, on the very same flight. On that same flight? On that flight? same oh, flight. I mean, this was back before they had TSA, right? Could have had a bobcat, I guess. But yeah, so we each had live animals on that flight. Mine got loose. And those animals would later be the cause of our eviction from a very nice apartment complex. But uh, that's another story altogether. That is awesome. Uh, hopefully it involves somebody getting bit in a pool. Uh, nobody got bit, but many people didn't think it was nearly as cool as we did to have a live alligator in the pool, which we didn't <laughs> understand. We thought this is a unique experience. People love unique experiences. We love the alligator. They'll love the alligator. Turned out to be nothing like that. So uh, that was one strike against us. And then the, the groundhog got out of his cage, chewed a hole in the wall, and began developing a tunnel network through the wall system of this big apartment building. And rumors started to surface about the largest rat anyone had ever seen. And <laughs> it was our groundhog chewing holes in walls and showing up in different apartments and things. And that was it. They evicted us. Just for those two things? I can't even... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're lucky you didn't get deported. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you. It's an authoritarian <laughs> state. <laughs> All right. So, David, w one of the things that I know about you is that in some form or another, you are and or were an actor. Tell me how that happened. Yeah, I um, was introduced to improv by a guy named Ryan Stiles, who by many accounts, is the best improv actor anywhere right now. He's he's that tall, goofy guy on Whose Line Is It Anyway, and he's on the Drew Carey show and on Two and a Half Men, and he shows up in a lot of different stuff. And as it turns out, he grew up in Canada, but just across the border in Canada from my hometown of Bellingham. And so he has a home down in Burbank, but he doesn't want his kids to be part of the whole Hollywood scene. And so he bought a home up here in Bellingham, and they went to public schools, uh, just like everybody else, and uh, I got to know him through that. So he got me involved in improv, cast me in the troupe for his theater here in town, and, and I did that for about seven years. But along the way, you know, people would see me on stage and say, hey, would you be in this commercial, or would you take this part in a movie pilot or whatever, and it just kind of turned into more things and more things and more things. The most viewed of them all being a carpet liquidators commercial, which <laughs> which shows regularly during Major League Baseball season for some reason. It must be the demographic. But I am that figure talking into your television during carpet liquidators. And as a result of that, I am now better known for hawking carpet than for summiting Mount Everest. Thank you very much. The good news is you still get paid, hopefully, for the carpet thing. And I don't think you uh, sh shoot the Everest thing cost you money. Yeah, no, there's there's very little money to be uh, made in Everest these days. It's an entirely different financial model, I think we can accurately say. <laughs> now, also, you're a certified financial planner. How come? Well, because I got to have a day gig. And uh, when I was in school, I got a degree in business administration. And first job I had was with Merrill Lynch uh, right out of college. And it turned into a pretty good gig. So I stayed with it. And I'm with it today, though I work for a different firm now. But it's kind of a right brain, left brain thing. The improv and the comedy and all that, of course, is very right brain. And this is very left brain. But they, they work together okay. Well, hopefully you're not improvising some of those numbers you're adding up, fella. Oh, our internal 
Nazi squad of auditors would have a lot to say if I did. So, no. Yes, they would. Also, you write. Don't you write for various travel and adventure magazines or at least one? Indeed, I do. And I enjoy doing that. I have fancied myself a writer for some time. For that reason, I've I've always kept journals. But, uh, I've worked my way into writing for various outdoor magazines, and I enjoy doing that. But this brings us closer to the point of where I think we're headed with the podcast, and that is the book I've written is out there now, The Altitude Journals, which uh, was fashioned largely from the journals that I kept while being an altitude climber. It is my understanding that before you climbed your first mountain, much like everybody else before they climbed their first mountain, you were not a mountain climber. Right. So that's a bad fit. A little bit. Tell us how that happened. <laughs> it's like being a lion tamer when you're not a lion tamer. I see no problem with this. <laughs> Well, you know, so the thing was, is I went through a pretty low spell and I don't want to burden everybody with my stuff because I think everybody goes through low spells and that's all you really need to know. But my brother-in-law recognized that I, I needed something constructive, something positive in my life. And so he approached me and he said, look, we're going to make an attempt on Mount McKinley in eight months and I think you should go with us. And Mount McKinley has now been renamed to its native name, Denali, in Alaska, 20,230 feet, the highest summit in North America. At any rate, so at the time I pointed out that I wasn't a mountain climber, and he said, well, look, we're all veterans. We're, we'll, we'll teach you stuff. We'll look after you. We'll, we'll train you as we go. But but I think you need something like this in your life right now. And and he was right. And uh, after him and Han for a week or two, I decided, you know what? The simple fact is I got nothing left to lose at this point. I'm living in my sister's guest room and I'm out of ideas. So what the heck? I'll give this a try. And I told him I would go. I uh, hired a trainer to get in good shape. I read books on climbing and was horrified by what I'd committed to. Eight months later, I landed at the foot of uh, Mount McKinley and with my team, and away we went. So at the time that you climbed it, it was Mount McKinley? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So was that changed by an executive order from President Obama? I think it was, yeah. I think it was, too. Yeah. Like, I, I was trying to remember while I was explaining to my son that I was going to be talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to remember when it changed. And, and then all of a sudden I had a flash and I'm pretty sure that it was done that way. And it was sort of basically a revert back to the original name, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Denali in Athabaskan means the great one. And that is what it had been known by for millennia before us uh, Caucasian Western types uh, came to the area. Uh, it was named McKinley by, I think, a surveyor general who was from Ohio and named it after the then governor of Ohio by the name of McKinley, who himself never even saw the mountain. And so <laughs> to wear that honor seemed, uh, I think, like a gross injustice to just about everybody with a clear thinking head. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh my goodness. Now, your book is called The Altitude Journals, and like you said before, it's basically a culmination of the journals that you wrote in while you were climbing the seven summits. Will you explain to everybody what are the seven summits, and if you can, name them? Well, sure. So the seven summits are the high point of each of the seven continents, kind of. And I say kind of because when we get to Australia, there's a curveball there. But let me name them in the order that I climbed them. And the first one is Denali in Alaska, 20,320 
20 feet. The next one that I climbed was in Africa. That's, of course, Kilimanjaro at 19,341 feet. The high summit for Europe is Mount Elbrus, which is actually in Russia, 18,510 feet. Then I went to Antarctica, uh, which is not just a flat piece of ice. They have a mountain range, uh, including Vincent Massif at 16,067 feet. And then I went to Papua New Guinea to climb Carson's Pyramid at 16,023 feet. And after that, went to, oh, I skipped Aconcagua in there at uh, 22,841 feet. That's South America. Uh, And after Papua New Guinea, I went to uh, Nepal and climbed Mount Everest, 29,029 feet. The reason I say that there's kind of a curveball with Australia, the the high summit of Australia is a mountain called Kosciuszko. It's only about 7,000 feet tall. And for an altitude climber, you can't stub your toe on 7,000 feet. So a broader net was cast. And if you were educated in the Commonwealth countries, like, say, Canada, Australia, in fact, is not a continent. The seventh continent to those folks is Oceania, which includes Papua New Guinea and the much more formidable Karstens Pyramid, 16,000 feet. So that's the seven, and those are the mountains uh, I climbed. And uh, as you've mentioned, yeah, I kept a, a journal with extemporaneous notes, several journals, through the course of those climbs. And I won't make the case that a lot of deep and cogent thinking occurs at 20,000 feet. So some of these pages had to be heavily edited. Hey, Streetwalkers, here's a word from our sponsors. Guess what, Streetwalkers? The gear is here. A bunch of you have been asking for quite some time, and now finally it's here. Head over to FascinationStreetPod.com and check out the gear tab. There, you'll find all kinds of FSP items to tickle your fancy. T-shirts, coffee mugs, sticker packs, pins, buttons, coasters, and my personal favorite, for just five bucks you can get one of those weird little phone handle pop thingies. So head to FascinationStreetPod.com and show the world that you're proud to be a streetwalker. Special thanks to my good buddy Stephen O'Reilly from the Bar Star Podcast for these dope drum beats. Check out Steve's work at O'Reilly Drums on Instagram or search Stephen O'Reilly on YouTube. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get back into it. But many of the entries in the book are verbatim what was in those journals. What kind of entries? Like, I'm guessing, like, man, this is really cold. Sure am hungry. Man, where's the bathroom? Ah, I forgot the toilet paper. But what is your version of this event? That's what I would be writing, along with a whole bunch of cuss words and why the hell did I even try this? Well, I tried to dig beyond the basic bathroom issues with the assumption that people pretty much already understand how that works. But I um, would just pick topics. You know, if, if we were engaging some Native people, I would explain who they are and, and what their way of life is about and, you know, maybe how they got here or, or anything else notable about them. If I was going to some far-flung place like Punta Arenas, the southern tip of South America, I would explain what that's about and the history of it and some of the notable incidents uh, around it. Try to always keep it interesting, in other words. And other times, you know, the, the journal entries would be about what's happening that day. You know, is there conflict in the team? Is there a challenge we're coming up against? Did somebody get injured? Where do we think we would be at this point in time? And why aren't we there? You know, these kinds of things. I can't imagine trying to climb anything, much less trying to write while I'm doing it. There weren't a lot of people keeping journals along the way. I was that guy, 20,000 feet in a down sleeping bag with a headlamp and a pencil and scratching away. But, you know, that's the writer in me that, that understands that if something of interest, whether you flushed out its importance or not, if something like that occurred, you got to write it down. You are not going to remember it seven months later when you sit down to write. So you got to try and capture some of that stuff. And and that proved invaluable at the end of the seven-year journey when I set about to turn all of that into a, a book. There's no way I would have remembered so much thing of what happened. Yeah, I bet. Now, I'd like to ask this question, David. What gave you the the confidence? Like, what made you think you could? I didn't think I could. How's that for an answer? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, on, on that first climb, as I said, I wasn't a mountain climber. And so, you know, I wasn't going to delude myself. I knew there was almost no chance I would get to the top of Denali. But I also felt like failing couldn't bother me much, frankly. I mean, I was at the bottom of the barrel with my life. And failing, what's it going to do, make me feel bad? I already feel bad. And so I thought, you know, I'm not going to make it to the top, but I'll see how far I can get. And maybe I'll get far enough that I feel pretty good about that as as an opening shot. And as the story goes, I, in fact, did get to the top, but for a number of unlikely reasons that are in the book and kind of beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But the point I want to draw down on is that moment where I decided I would go even though I didn't think I would succeed. And it's this. If you think about it, fear of failure holds you back in so many things in life, big things, small things, all of us. It holds us back. But there is one time when I guarantee you, you will not fear failure, and that is when your life is in shambles. Lucky you. Um, (laughs) 
because you know what? It, things can get so bad that it's hard to believe they could get worse. And at that point, you don't fear a failure. And the thing about it is it's really easy to see all the things that are being taken away from you. But it's not obvious to see that that gift is also being given to you, that for a short while, you are bulletproof. You are immune to fear of failure. And I hope anybody listening to this who finds himself at the bottom of the barrel remembers that and they choose a bold step forward. Now, I have spoken to, and this is, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but I've spoken to uh, several Mary Kay national sales directors, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind that make millions of dollars a year. And mm-hmm. they all have similar stories. And, and one that really sticks out, there's a, there was a lady who uh, her husband had left her and she had uh, two small children. One of them was still in diapers, the other one not far out of them. She had mm-hmm. no, no husband, no job, no money, and she was really about to lose everything. She was about to lose her house and, uh, you know, everything. It's, it's just as, as rough as it could get. And that's when she started her Mary Kay career. And... The way she explained it is that one of the keys to her success is that she had nothing to lose and she also had no choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, in hearing your story about all of this stemmed from a pretty low point in your life, arguably the lowest, I sort of was remembering that woman's words when I was hearing your story and you were telling it in a different interview. And I think it's super inspiring that no matter where you are, Things can get better. And I love the fact that you just, you're like, well, I mean, literally, what else do I have to lose? If I do this and I don't make it, eh, it's not really a big stick in my ego because I don't have one anymore. You know, like I, yeah. I, I've lost everything. <laughs> right. It's like if, if I do this and I fail, I, I still haven't lost anything. <laughs> I, I had nothing to lose. So, yeah, that 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 is where you where where you find yourself and and that of course is where all the real growth occurs in life too. I mean let's face it we don't grow when we're comfortable and when we're comfortable we don't take risks and and comfort is the essential enemy of of all growth, right? And so when people find they're not growing in their life, my bet is is they're not taking any risks and they're doing that because they're comfortable. They don't want to risk comfort. And so Something's got to give in that equation if they're going to move forward. Now, I'm going to assume that just because you are the 65th American to climb the seven summits, to reach the peak of the seven summits, I'm going to assume that's not the only mountain climbing you've done. You climb a bunch of mountains all the time, don't you? Yeah, I do. What I'm doing right now is what's called high pointing, and it's a thing in the in the climbing world where you climb the high point of of each state, which in some cases is comically low, but it gives you an excuse to go places you might not have gone and see some things you might not have seen, and you know, and it's a great excuse to keep climbing. So I've climbed I've climbed the hard ones at this point, and I'm kind of moving my way down the list. I'm going to be in Hawaii climbing Mauna Kea in February, and I'm looking forward to that. That should be a great experience. But you know, as I travel around on, on the promotional tour for my book. Uh, whenever I can, I'll, I'll, you know, throw an extra day in there and I'll scamper off and, and go up a hill. Now, I have to imagine that the highest point in Hawaii is probably an active volcano. Are you going to be all right, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, Mauna Kea is not technically active. It's, uh, it's kid brother is, though, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, I think I'm probably going to be okay. <laughs> all right, cool. 
I know that during that that low point before before all of this really got going, uh, before you got your life back, so to speak, I know that your brother passed away. Mm -hmm. And he was fairly young when that happened? Yeah, he was 37. Now, that is really young. I don't want to go into what happened because that's really none of our business, but I do want to ask you this question. When did your brother pass away? Uh, He passed away about four years before. um, So I would have been 40, about four years before um, I went on that climb. Okay. And this may sound like a weird question, but have you spoken with him since? Yes, I have. (laughs) Yes, I have. So when I was on the Denali climb, there's uh, this flat, this big flat expanse that's only about, I don't know, 900 feet below the summit itself. It's called the football field. And our team had gone through a lot. And we had skipped rest days because the weather wasn't going to last very long. And we were making our summit attempt. And we are and we get all the way up to the football field. And we're trekking across it all roped together in a line. And I become aware of someone walking beside me. And I thought it was one of my climbing partners on the rope behind me who had walked up to tell me something, which he did from time to time. He was coaching me. And, uh, and I looked over, and, and it was my brother. And uh, he's in these tennis shoes and this ratty old coat he used to always wear, and he's smoking a cigarette. And, and he says to me, hey, I think you're going to make it. And I kind of got choked up, and I said, oh, that would that'd be so great. And he said, yeah. And then, you know, the impossibility of it all just kind of hit me. And I said to him, I said, but Danny, you're, you're, you're dead. And he got this sort of sad look on his face. He said, yeah, I know. And he just disappeared. Wow. You know, part of my low point in life was obviously my brother's death, which happened a few years earlier, but I never really grieved it because, you know, in every family, there's somebody who greases the skids and gets things done. And that's always been me. So I made the funeral arrangements and presided over the dispersion of his personal effects and all this kind of stuff while everybody else just experienced the loss. But as a result of that, I never really did. And it caught up with me and, you know, destroyed my marriage, (laughs) just about destroyed my career. And, and everything else. And it was that moment with him up on Denali that helped me to understand how pivotal that was in what had gone wrong in my life. And to kind of go through the grieving process, I left some of his ashes on the summit of the next six continents. Um, And that was always just sort of my moment with him. And I, I felt like it did a lot for me. Wow, that's beautiful. You left a piece of him everywhere, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's up on top of Mount Everest, and <laughs> and he's on top of Antarctica and Africa and Russia and everywhere else, yeah. Oh, here's a, a morbid question. You know, we hear a lot about how there's just a whole bunch of people up there that aren't going to come back down. Mm-hmm. Did you see any of those people? Oh, yeah, yeah. What goes through your mind when you are doing the impossible and you see somebody who didn't quite make it to finish the impossible. Yeah. Well, first of all, I knew I'd be seeing those people. I mean, it's well understood that there are bodies on the, especially on the the high part of Everest because they don't decompose in that cold, cold atmosphere and they don't get covered with snow because the jet stream pretty much scours uh, Everest uh, on a constant basis. So, they're there and you do see them. And when I would, I'd just take a moment to kind of 
trying to imagine them uh, when they were still alive and excited about being on the climb and and I would sort of feel a kinship with them from that standpoint and and then I'd move on you know you got a job to do and you've got a game plan and you got a an hourglass that's going to run out of sand so you can't dawdle uh, you got to keep moving. You got to keep a clear head focused on what needs to be done in each moment. Wow. Did you say the jet stream sort of scrubs it at, of the snow and stuff? Yeah. So is it super windy? Like, can, can you just get blown off the top of Everest? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. Which is why, you know, you wait for the winds to die down. Wind is the single biggest foe of climbers, uh, far and away the, the, the most troublesome thing. So with Everest, what we know is that the jet stream will swing from the south side to the north side at the start of monsoon season, which is usually mid-May right about there. And when it does that, it's kind of like slack tide, you know, where, where the waves lay down and the tide lays down for just a moment while you're shifting direction. Well, that's the moment that Everest climbers wait for. And everything they're doing before that moment is preparing themselves for it, building camps, moving camps higher, acclimating their bodies, going up and then back down and then up higher and then back down. Everything is designed to be kind of like a snake that's coiling and coiling. And when the moment's right, you strike. Wow. Uh, what's the highest point in Texas? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I haven't climbed that one yet. No, gotcha. But but I, I know it's less than 14,000 feet. How's that? <laughs> How do you know that? Are you doing them in order of height? <laughs> no, because the, the highest point in the lower 48 is Mount Whitney at about 14,000. 1,140, and Rainier's only about 40 feet shorter than that, and everything else is, is uh, at 14 or, or something just below it. Oh, okay. So everything else is just a joke. Uh, I don't know. You can get in lots of trouble on a 13,000-foot peak. Uh, I can get in lots of trouble on a three-story ladder climb, so... <laughs> <laughs> on a second here. I was pulling up my information to see what the high point of Texas is, now that you've asked me. It is Guadalupe Peak, 8,749 feet. Where the hell is that? I don't know. <laughs> he said, it's in Texas. Know. When I go to climb it, I'll know a lot more about it. Ask me then. All righty. I'll ask you then. I think that one time you basically got high on cinnamon. What's that all about? All right, so in Papua New Guinea, what we needed to do was six days of trekking through the jungle just to get to the peak we wanted to climb. And to do that, we had to pass through the territories of three different indigenous peoples. Hey, streetwalkers, here's a word from our sponsors. Hey, guys, if you like what I'm doing, click the Amazon banner at the top of the homepage on fascinationstreetpod.com and do all of your shopping through Amazon. Once you click on it and it takes you to Amazon, you can bookmark it or add it to your favorites and you won't have to go to my site each time. It helps me keep the show going. And again, thanks for listening. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's get back into it. It should be noted that the tribes of New Guinea regularly raid each other. They are in a constant state of war. And so negotiating a, a truce that would allow us to cross the three tribal lands was not an easy thing. But we managed it. And in fact, it went pretty well, all things considered, at least in terms of the tribes intermingling. And one thing they started doing is they'd sort of make this uh, a fire for our camp each night with whatever they could find that was blow down wood. And one night in the jungle, what they found was a cinnamon tree that had blown over and those grow indigenously in New Guinea. And, and they made this fire out of it. And the smoke was so heavy with the smell of cinnamon. It was just, it was, it was just fantastic. It was dizzying almost. And it got into our hair and our sleeping bags and everything. And weeks later, when I was home, I'd pull out a piece of equipment and I could smell that cinnamon. It was just an awesome experience. That sounds super dope. It's not like when you walk into the grocery store in November and they got all those stupid cinnamon brooms around, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it is it is nothing like a cinnamon broom, nothing at all. <laughs> and and you know what? You you learn a lot being in New Guinea. Uh not only about cinnamon trees and such, but you know, about the native people that you're traveling with who are usually working as porters. You're going back in time when you go there. Uh, a lot of the men still wear what's called a, a penis gourd. And uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with that term, it's literally what it sounds like. Uh, for clothing, they take a hollowed out gourd and they put it over their schwanz. And then they'll tie a string around the top pointy end of it and, and then tie that around their waist so it stays proudly pointed north. And um, <laughs> as, as, as fashion goes, I would describe the penis gourd as uh, having the, the simplicity of uh, the fig leaf with the pride of Trojan battle armor. And, uh, <laughs> and, it, and, it's, and, it, and incredibly, it's a gift that implies the present to be larger than the package it came in. Okay, so <laughs> this is really something special. Don't miss it if you go to New Guinea. <laughs> Did you take one home with you? 
I did. Did you really? Yeah, no, it was brand new. I didn't want to use penis gourd. Thank you. Wait, do they just sell penis gourds at the store? Uh, in the village, they do. Yeah. Where do you think people get their penis gourds? You go to penis gourds or us. That's what I you do. I thought it was a dot com thing. I guess Amazon's not everywhere I thought they were. <laughs> or you go to penis gourd depot, you know, something like that. There you go. Uh huh. Oh, here's a question. What the hell is an IL 76 and why is it important to your journey of the seven? Uh, an IL 76 is a Russian made cargo jet. It was designed during the Cold War era so that they could move tanks and military equipment into places where they officially had no military presence. Um, so in other words, clandestine operations. But the IL-76 is made to land on rugged, improvised runways, and it can carry a tank in it. It's got a drop-down tail. So a group of, of shady characters, uh, probably foreign Russian military, bought uh, war surplus IL-76, and uh, they would and probably still are hiring themselves out to the highest bidder for whatever shady mission is needed. They run guns in Afghanistan for about half the year, and then uh, other parts of the year, they're in other places with this jet. And the way we got to Antarctica was we found that these guys were bringing a bunch of equipment to a group of scientists in Antarctica. I mean, there are no regular flights to Antarctica. And we bought our way onto the jet, uh, which was not cheap, but they got us in a mountain of gear onto the ice shelf. And from there, we uh, used other aircraft to move further inland. That is insane. So how rickety was that piece of Russian technology? It wasn't at all rickety. And I thought it would be. I thought it'd fly like a meat wagon with wings. But this thing took off in gale force winds. It headed into the straits at the southern tip of South America. And it cut through those winds like a hot knife through butter. It was an incredible aircraft. Now, comfort was hard to come by inside because this is a cargo jet. So what they'd done is they'd gotten a hold of some old red velvet theater seats and bolted them to pallets and then put uh, cargo slides on the bottom of the pallets. And that was it. It became clear that in the event of loss of cabin pressure, there were going to be no air mass dropping from the ceiling. There were no seatbelts. And uh, some of the seats uh, would recline. Some of them were reclined, but never come back up again. It was basically sit down, shut up, you are cargo. Those were the terms that we agreed to. <laughs> I would say that's crazy, but your whole point, like the whole reason you went over there was so that you could do one of the most foolish things a person could do. So that's not even the craziest thing you did on that trip. <laughs> no, huh? I, in fact, sat down on a, on a toilet seat at 40 below. That's probably the craziest thing I did on the trip. And then you add the climbing stuff to the whole thing. But no, it's kind of in for a penny, in for a pound with this stuff. Once you decide you're going to do something like this, you know, you're just going to keep adding elements of risk and you have to live with that. Makes sense. What's the name of your blog and where can people find it? My blog is uh, can be found on Blogspot. All people have to do is type in the name of one of these mountains from the Seven Summit. I maintain it as seven different blogs. 
And so, you know, I think maroeverest.blogspot.com will take you to my extensive blog on Mount Everest. Maro Aconcagua, similarly, Maro Elbrus, you know, they're, they're all on there in their public domain. And, you know, it's not a bad way to test drive the book because if, if you look at the blogs and you like the writing, you're going to like the book. If you don't like it, yeah, save the money, don't bother buying the book. But that's all out there. And while we're on the topic of the book, I know a lot of people consume books through audiobooks nowadays. It's like 30% of my book sales is audiobooks. So the book is on iTunes. It's on Audible. I read the book for uh, the audiobook version. It's also on ebook, and, and you can buy the printed version on Amazon and on barnesandnoble.com, all that sort of stuff. And uh, the last part of my commercial is uh, because everybody's got a book, it seems, these days, but not all books are good. At least the Amazon readers think this one's pretty skookum. It's five stars out of five stars with 123 reviews. So there you go. Well-reviewed. I like it. David, I'm glad that you were talking about the book. So, again, it's called The Altitude Journals, and it basically chronicles your, the journey of you climbing these these seven summits. If it's okay with you, I'd like to give one of these books away to one of the Fascination Street streetwalkers, if that's cool. Let's do it. All right, you hear that, Streetwalkers. This is that time. You send me an email at fascinationstreetpod at gmail.com. In the subject line, put the Altitude Journals. That's it. That's all you got to do. And then I will pick a winner and you will get an autographed physical copy of David Morrow's The Altitude Journals. I might even put a lock of hair in between the pages. Um, as long as it doesn't come out of that weird gourd, I think that'll be OK. <laughs> <laughs> you saw where I was going. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Back in the old days, uh, there was this dude named Johnny Carson, who was a, a just a, an amazing uh, Tonight Show host and all-around comic, great guy, whatever. He used to do this thing when he would have a guest on. He'd say, now, uh, somebody, uh, somebody, somebody backstage told me, and so that's what I'm going to do to you. Somebody backstage told me that you, at one time, had the cheesiest armpits in the country. Mm. What the hell does that mean? It means that I was desperate to add some cheese to my freeze-dried mashed potatoes while climbing in an Arctic circumstance, and the cheese was frozen. But I realized that if I put a pad of cheese in each armpit, by the time the water had boiled, the cheese would be thawed. I'd have cheesy mashed potatoes. <laughs> so I'm assuming that worked. <laughs> it did. It did. Now, I don't know how many people think that's an actual solution, uh, being as, as it sounds barbaric and vulgar, but your idea of barbaric gets adjusted when you're living in an Arctic circumstance, and, and uh, ingenuity, especially anything having to do with food, is welcome. Well, and also, the uh, I think the definition of disgusting is wildly different when it's something you're going to feed yourself versus something you're going to feed somebody else. Fair point. Let us clarify this is not an idea for your next potluck. But correct. if it's just you making food for you, perfectly kosher. I mean, if you're at a restaurant and you get a hair in your food, you lose your shit. But if you're at your house and a hair gets in your food, you take it out and move on. Yeah, well, that's true. It's true. You know it's your hair. You know where that hair's been. Exactly. Well, I mean, and, and to be fair, pretty much all humans... At one point when they were, hopefully when they were small, they ate their own boogers, but you wouldn't eat somebody else's boogers. That's disgusting. No, we're civilized people. <laughs> it's only proprietary <laughs> booger consumption. That's a hard rule with me. 
<laughs> I'm putting my foot down, damn it. Only my boogers and no one else's. Now, on the acknowledgments page in your book, you thank a Mrs. Morgan. Who is she and why was it so important for you to thank her? Mrs. Morgan was my third grade teacher. And uh, she was only my third grade teacher for half the year because she left on maternity leave after that. But Mrs. Morgan realized that I like to write stories. And simple as they may have been in the third grade, she made a big deal out of them. And so it got to be this thing where they weren't assigned, but I would just write stories and write stories. And I'd take them to her because I just I'd love the, the reaction and the recognition. And, you know, if you start a kid early enough in life with a lie that they'll believe, then <laughs> you've kind of programmed a part of the course of their life. And I never stopped believing I was a writer after that. And that's why I kept journaling and why I eventually wrote for magazines and, and ended up writing this book, which I don't think we've mentioned, won the Beverly Hills Book Award. It was a grand prize winner. So Mrs. Morgan, if you're listening, and I can't imagine that you are, thank you. I am indeed indebted. Joke's on you. Say hi, Mrs. Morgan. <laughs> oh, no, she's not here. My <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Morgan would be of very advanced years at this point. But, you know, I still remember as that 20-something lady who's uh, eight months pregnant and big smile. Always got a place in my heart. Uh, David, do you have a website? I sure do. It's davidjmorrow.com. And Morrow is spelled M-A-U-R-O. I'm also on social media. And let, and let me just say, I was never really into social media before the book came out. But my, my publicist, he was adamant. He was like, no, 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 no. You got to be on Twitter. You got to be on Instagram. You got to be on Grinder. And so uh, <laughs> I was waiting for the reaction. No, he didn't tell me to be on Grinder. You know, I wasn't sure how that was going to help me with book sales, but I did meet a hunkish fireman <laughs> named Derek. So you got that going for you. Anyway, so Twitter, I am at David J underscore Morrow. And on Instagram, I'm just David J Morrow. Probably noticing a pattern. Facebook. Facebook. So on Facebook, I have a page set up just for the book. So just type in the Altitude Journals, and that'll take you there. And really, that's probably the best place to sort of follow the story, because I'm, I'm much more current with that, posting videos and this is and that's. Uh, I got to visit the Ellen Show last week, and I posted some stuff on that. So it's, it's kind of fun to follow along there. But if you go to the, my website, uh, you can contact me. There's a, there's a link there that'll let you send an email to me or to my dog, Rocky. Rocky the Wonder Dog. He has his own email address, too. And there's, a, there's videos there and there's you know links to uh, if somebody wants to uh, buy the book uh, uh, as all that stuff. Now, before I let you go, David, is there anything that we didn't talk about or I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? I guess not, because nothing is coming to mind. <laughs> I enjoyed the interview, though. It was fun. I enjoyed it as well. And I would just like to point out for everybody listening that after David told that grinder joke, his exact words after he said, just kidding, my agent or manager did not tell me to join <laughs> Grinder. He didn't say he didn't join it. He just said that he wasn't told to. So... We all know there's a little bit of truth in comedy, so who knows? Join Grinder and look for him and see what happens. That's 
right. Yeah, you'll, you'll recognize my shot as a still frame from the video Guys Gone Wild. So, you know, that's just a, a kind of a hint for you. If you are scrolling and swiping or whatever you do on Grinder, and you happen to see a gentleman with a penis gourd, that's your man. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you so much, man, for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out and let us get to know you a little better on Fascination Street. I super appreciate it, man. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it, Steve. You take care of yourself. Yes, sir. You too, man. Uh, stay, uh, stay grounded, David. Stay grounded. <laughs> that I shall. I'll talk to you later, buddy. <laughs> bye. Alrighty, bye. As always, thanks for listening, Streetwalkers. And don't forget, follow the show on Twitter at FascinationSTPD. On Instagram at FascinationStreetPod. Follow the podcast page on Facebook at FascinationStreetPodcast. And of course, you can always email me at FascinationStreetPod at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button and rate us on iTunes. Opening music is the song Magnolia from the 2014 album Intransigence. Used with permission from Douglas Miles Clark. Closing music is Apollo from the 2001 album Into the Known by the band Sapphire. Thanks for hanging out with us and getting to know a little bit about our guest. We'll see you next time on Fascination Street. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.